Thank you. You can be seated. What would it be an Eric Baker sermon without a quote from Dr. John Piper? So to continue that tradition, this morning I'm going to start with one. Because I believe that he says it far better than I can. For many of you who have walked through a divorce and are now single or remarried, or whose parents who are divorced or some other loved one, the mere mention of the word carries a huge weight of sorrow and loss and tragedy and disappointment and anger and regret and guilt. Few things are more painful than divorce. It cuts through the depths of personhood unlike any other relational gash. It is emotional, more heart-wrenching than the death of a spouse. Death is usually clean pain. Divorce is usually dirty pain. In other words, the enormous loss of a spouse in death is compounded in divorce by the ugliness of sin and the moral outrage at being so wronged. It is often long years in coming and long years in settlement and in the adjustment. The upheaval of life is immeasurable. The sense of failure and guilt and fear can torture the soul. Like the psalmist, night after night, and a, a spouse falls asleep with tears in Psalms chapter 6, verse 6. Work performance is hindered. People don't know how to relate to you anymore, and friends start to withdraw. You can feel like you wear a big scarlet D on your chest. The loneliness is not like the loneliness of being a widow or widower or a person who has never been married. It is in a class by itself, which is one of the reasons why so many divorced people find each other. A sense of devastated future can be all-assuming. Courtroom controversy compounds the personal misery. And then there is often the agonizing place of children. Parents hope against hope that the scars will not cripple the children or, or ruin their marriages someday. Tensions over custody and financial support deepen the wounds, and then the awkward and artificial visitation rights can lengthen the tragedy over decades. And add to all of this that it happens in America to over four out of every ten couples. This quote illustrates the heaviness of the Scripture today. Many of us, on many different levels, have been greatly affected by divorce, whether it was our parents, a family member, a friend, or part of even a church. Divorce leaves layers upon layers of baggage and collateral damage in its wake. It's my aim this morning to be faithful to God's Word while caring for you tenderly as one of your pastors. Divorce is very complex and has become the cultural norm. You can drive down the road, ladies and gentlemen, and see billboards that state this. Life is short. Get a divorce. I even saw a website on Google that said, um, this is a literal place you can go online, KentuckyInstantDivorce.com, where for $139, a person can fill out the legal forms and get a divorce. Yet while some celebrate this newfound liberty in divorce, others, at the mere mention of this word, causes pain and agony. Jesus, in the greatest sermon ever preached, sees the importance of addressing the issue of divorce. And confessionally, 
If I was a topical preacher, that meant every Sunday I kind of came up with a topic to talk to you about, divorce is one that I would never speak of. Ever. All right? Ever. I would never want to talk about it. I am a nerd who has been saved. I love to preach. I love my wife. I love children. I love a steak, medium rare, don't burn it, don't kill that thing any more than it's already dead. I love to preach. I do not want to preach this morning. I don't want to. However, to be faithful to God and faithful to this text, that's why we preach through books of the Bible at Mission Church. My friend was joking me at, with me at T4G. He says, man, your sermon series lasts too long. I said, isn't it the way it's supposed to be done? Like, if it took John Piper ten years to get through the book of Romans, and I did it two and a half, I'm moving pretty quick, brother. <laughs> but the reason why we preach through books of the Bible here at Mission Church is it forces us as your pastors, it forces us as a community of faith to dive into very difficult sensitive topics that I'm here to tell you, if I could pull, you know, a Thomas Jefferson and cut this one out of the Bible like he did the miracles of Jesus, this is a passage that I would do, especially if I was the one to preach that day. I want you to know this morning that the Bible teaches us through these difficult issues how Jesus can redeem even this brokenness. Though difficult, if we're going to be faithful followers of Jesus, then we must place ourselves under the authority of God's Word no matter what. This is the ultimate reason of why I named the sermon The Great Divorce. It is because we are daily tempted to divorce ourselves from God's Word, especially on difficult subjects. I hear people all the time, and they even make fun of my sermon sometimes. Um, when I make certain comments, or we hear certain languages, or certain things taught from the Bible, um, because it doesn't seem to be reality. We, like the first listeners of Jesus' sermon, can easily distance ourselves from the Scripture that when a person rightfully teaches it, that it, it seems so radical, so foreign to us, that we believe that it can't be saying what it's saying. And that is what we're seeing in our culture, is the great divorce. God has said it, but we do not live accordingly to what He says, and we have justified it. Jesus continues to illustrate today the deeper meaning of the moral, ceremonial, and judicial laws that we see throughout the Old Testament, and which is at the heart of the deep religious traditions of the Jews. Earlier in our sermon series, in chapter 5, verse 17 through 20, Jesus explains to his listeners that he has not come to destroy the law or to abolish it, but to fulfill it. The Jews had misunderstood, misinterpreted the Old Testament law. Jesus wants the citizens of his kingdom of God to have proper interpretation. In essence, Jesus is raising the bar even of the Old Testament law. Over and over, Jesus repeats this statement. You have heard it said, right? You have heard it said, do not, be, uh, do not murder. You have heard it said, do not commit adultery. 
He's speaking of the law, but then he follows that statement as we've covered the last several weeks, but I, Jesus. So he is trumping, he's fulfilling the previous statement. Jesus, king, ruler, sovereign authority says to you. I've not come to keep you from just physically killing someone, but I've also come to save your murderous minds, as he tells us earlier. I've not come simply to keep you from committing adultery, but I've come to redeem your lust-filled hearts. Jesus is going to say something about the gospel and marriage. Let me repeat that in case you forget it while we're going through this. Jesus is going to say something about the gospel and marriage. Jesus is taking this very Jewish audience as he gathers on the side of the mountain. There's a large multitude primarily made up of Jews, and yet Jesus is though broadcasting to the multitudes is speaking directly to his disciples. He is going to take those Jewish listeners back to the truer and better meaning of the law. He tells us, It was also said, whoever divorces wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. Jesus, as we often see in Matthew, is quoting something from the Old Testament as Matthew in his letter, one of his life settings, purposes, and themes is to prove that Jesus is the foretold Messiah told about in the Old Testament and that all the Old Testament points toward this person named Jesus. He is quoting Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 1, where it says this, when a man takes his wife and marries her, If then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, then he writes her a certificate of divorce. Yeah, this is where I graduated from Western. This is where I graduated from seminary. And this is my certificate on the wall of my divorce. Just proving I've got the paper to prove it. Jesus is quoting this in Deuteronomy, or he's quoting it now in in letter from Matthew, but he is quoting this Old Testament passage that definitely these Jews would have known. There was much, much controversy surrounding this verse. What does it mean in the eyes, in his eyes, in a man's eyes, if he has found some sort of indecency in his wife? Can you get the controversy? That's a very subjective thing, isn't it? It's important to note that a woman was never allowed to divorce her husband in the Old and New Testament. Many liberal rabbis interpreted this in a very, very broad sense. Ladies and gentlemen, we need to get this culturally. By the the time that Jesus is born, divorce for any purpose was the cultural norm even for the Orthodox Jew. For instance, these are real and one not real, but cultural to us. Listen to this. For instance, a man can divorce his wife if she is a terrible cook, meaning she burns the toast. If she is spinning around in her dress, and her dress flies up and reveals to people her ankles, he can divorce her. If she became deaf or mute, divorce. If she has a weird-shaped head, divorce. If she becomes cross-eyed, divorced. If she's missing any teeth, divorced. If she becomes bow-legged, divorced. 
if she was walking around with her hair down. That's a cultural thing. Um, ladies only took their hair down when they were doing what we talked about last week's sermon. All right? Worship. I'm glad. Good that you're awake today. Um, and so in that... Um, it's very, very important for you to understand that was something you, a lady did not let her hair down, okay? It was a sign of, hey, let's get it on, all right? So you didn't do that. All right, if a woman is speaking to a man walking down the street, divorce. If she speaks disrespectfully to her husband about his parents, so they're in an argument, and she's like, your mom goes to college, divorce. If she keeps leaving the toilet seat down, divorce. If, that, that, was, that was mine, sorry. Why do we always have to be the one to put it down? Live it up. All right. If he considers her no longer attractive, divorce. If he found someone else that he prefers, sexually, relationally, he's allowed encouraged to get a divorce. Listen to this. This is really sad. If a woman is barren, meaning she cannot have children, then according to Jewish standards, he is obligated to divorce her. In Matthew chapter 19, and I'm going to preach the divorce sermon from 5 and 19, so when we finally get to 19 in like 2019, we're just going to repost this sermon because I'm not doing this again for a while. In Matthew chapter 19, we're going to turn there in just a minute, so go ahead and flip over to chapter Matthew, Matthew chapter 19. Jesus has to address this issue because the Jews were trying to trap him and draw him into this debate. In, in Matthew 19, the Jews are trying to embarrass, humiliate, and ruin him in front of a large crowd so that it would discredit him and his ministry. Divorce was a common practice even among the leaders. They wanted to show that Jesus was more strict on divorce than the religious leaders believed and practiced. They hoped the crowd, hearing Jesus' strict answer, because they had heard it earlier in his ministry, that they would walk away from Jesus. When they started to, um, or excuse me, when they wanted to be divorced, they did it. It was as easy as hitting the easy button. Let me ask you this morning, does this sound anything like our culture? For any reason, and for every reason, a person could get a divorce and it be sanctioned by the Jewish, we'll call it church. Matthew chapter 19, let's read. Verse 1. Now when Jesus had finished these sayings, he went away from Galilee and entered the region of Judea beyond the Jordan. So this is a few weeks out from Jesus' death. A large crowd followed him, and he healed them there. And Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh." So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, 
Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and send her away? And he said to them, Because of your hard-heartedness, because of your hardness of your heart, excuse me, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. The straight answer is this, brothers and sisters. Jesus looked at a very large crowd of people and said... You are adulterers. Your divorce may have been earthly legal, but it was not divinely approved. Jesus destroyed the popular belief and practice. Every marriage is the working of God in some way. Believer and non-believer. The boundaries that God has placed is for everyone because it is a holy, sanctioned, created thing by God. This culture sounds a lot like America. We we have what is called no-fault divorce or irreconcilable differences. Those things do not reflect what we see in Scripture for means of divorce. The question that many in our culture and in our culture, in their culture and in our culture are asking, even if they don't verbalize it, is when is it okay? When am I allowed? When do I have God's approval to get a divorce? And I've been asked this question many times in pastoring. I've put into some really awkward, difficult situations as I've been asked these very tough questions. And I want you to know that I have wavered on how to answer them, but I can't today. I have grieved with people walking away from their marriages on no biblical grounds, a few of them on biblical grounds, and some who have fought to save their marriages. Notice what Jesus does. Jesus goes back to the very beginning of Genesis to describe God's original purpose in marriage. For no other purpose, he tells us, shall a man leave his father or his mother. For no other reason should a woman leave her father or mother other than to be joined in covenant of marriage. Marriage between one man and one woman is the most serious, is one of the most serious, if not the most serious of God's decrees. I don't know about you, but when I was a kid, I used to love to play with Play-Doh. My mom was really good to me. She bought like the whole kit to where you could put the different slides in this red and blue thing. You know what I'm talking about? It looked like a kind of like a pedal, and you could pack in the, the Play-Doh, and you could smash it out in all of these different tubes, and we'd make spaghetti and all sorts of things. I used to never bring out the Play-Doh when my friends were over, and here's the reason why. If you take two different colors of Play-Doh and you mix them together, it just becomes a brown, nasty, very unpleasant to look at thing in your hand. Because once those colors are mixed, there, there is no undoing the Play-Doh. It is together. You cannot separate it. And so when I would have friends come over and we'd actually get it out, which became never, they would mix the colors in a person with OCD that really messes with us. 
Because no matter how much I try, I cannot separate those things. This is the way that God views and has designed marriage. The two, two people, have become one flesh. It is an earthly illustration of what we call the Trinity. Father, Son, Holy Spirit, you've got like, they're one God, and yet they are different in some ways, yet they're one, and there is no perfect illustration on how to explain the Trinity to you, because they all fall apart. The closest one that we have is marriage. Laura Baker and I are one. We're two different persons, and yet we, according to the Scripture, are one. We cannot be separated in God's view. So, even if divorce is allowed in certain cases, the biblical understanding that we have of it is that it is not commanded or even encouraged. Though it may be permissible, and as we're seeing so far, the only permissible way that a man and woman can get a divorce in God's view and from the heavenly realms is through sexual immorality. And yet, even if it is permissible, it is not commanded by God. It is not encouraged by God. The marriage covenant is more important than being a parent. And people need to realize that. I know parents who still sleep with their elementary school age parents, kids, away from their husband. I want you to know that that's unhealthy. There's no more important relationship on this planet. It is more important, the husband and wife relationship is more important than being a parent. The marriage relationship is the most important human relationship this side of heaven. We believe here at Mission Church in what's called the perseverance or preservation of the saints by God, meaning this, those who have truly been saved by God's saving grace will forever be God's. I should hear amen right there. All right. If you are saved, you will always be saved, and your life will reflect this gift. We will persevere or be preserved by the Holy Spirit. That means we are sealed. Jesus speaks of this in John chapter 6. He will lose none of his sheep. That's another. Amen. Thank goodness. Right? Praise God. Once you are in a relationship with God through Jesus, the relationship will never be, can never be divorced. This type of relationship is unconditional relationship. It is to be reflected on earth through marriage. All marriages. God's purpose is one man, one woman, one life until death or until his return. Originally, the concept of divorce was never an option. No matter what, sickness, health, money, no money, sin, the marriage was to endure, persevere to the end of this earthly life. How serious is this to God? In the last book of the Old Testament, it says this, 
in Malachi chapter 2, verses 14 through 16. Let me read it to you. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless. Though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring? So guard yourselves in your spirit and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence. Most of your translations right there say this. God, he says, the, excuse me, says the Lord, the God of Israel, God hates divorce, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in the Spirit and do not be faithless. Believers and non-believers, God hates divorce. Jesus responds by telling the Pharisees, divorce was never God's plan or desire. Moses Institute. This is what Jesus says. Moses instituted divorce, not God, but God allowed it because of the hardness of their hearts. But from the beginning, it was not so. In essence, Jesus is saying we need to go back to God's original intent. Moses was not simply giving them an easy way out of marriage, even back in Deuteronomy. But he was allowing it in extreme cases, primarily due to, to protect women from being treated poorly by her husband or former husband from walking in and out of her life whenever he wanted. Jesus states in Matthew chapter 5 and in Matthew chapter 19 that divorce is not an option unless it's on the grounds of sexual immorality. The word here, pornonia, is the word that we discussed in last week's sermon, which is a very wide view of sexual immorality. Adultery, fornication, homosexuality, bestiality. These types of sexual immorality in the Old Testament was punished by death. A person who was sinned against in these days or in these ways was free from their marriage. Why? Because the person who did these things was killed for doing them. Thus, freeing you in the marriage. We say in our current marriages, and I believe that it is a scriptural statement, till death does us part. So if, and I would contend that this is a big if, if a person, if a reason for a person to be allowed to get a divorce according to Jesus, it is only because one of the spouses has been habitually unfaithful through sexual immorality. Habitual, that means continuous, living a life of this. That does not mean if a man is found looking at pornography that a woman has the right to go and divorce her husband. That goes as far as to say this. 
if a woman is caught in the bed of another. Under biblical grounds, she is not granted the opportunity to divorce that man. For he is not granted the opportunity to divorce that woman. The decree here is that it is unlawful sexual immorality that is habitual, that is this continually walking in this over and over and over. Jesus is not suggesting that if a woman commits adultery and repents and is seeking counsel and guidance from her elders at the church, that the husband has permission to divorce her simply because he cannot get over what she has done. The hope, the prayer, the fight, the gospel life should be for forgiveness Unreconciliation. But brothers and sisters in Christ, I want to suggest to you that today, that though this is permitted, again, it is not the plan. Jesus is not saying that if your spouse has been sexually active outside the marriage, divorce them. Jesus is no way suggesting that a person should pounce on their spouse's unfaithfulness by getting a divorce. I would argue that this is even more true for a follower of Jesus. Jesus is saying it may take years. It may be filled with agony. It may be filled with tears. It may require much work. But that the desire of those people, of that person, even if they are the ones that have been sinned against, should be for reconciliation of that marriage. Jesus' teaching was radical. And even blew away the disciples' minds. Imagine, like me, standing up here before many of you, or going up here to Western's campus, and telling people that according to God's plan, unless there was extended, habitual sexual immorality, that those whom are divorced have greatly sinned against God. I find comfort in the realization that, as many of you, maybe you're hearing this for the first time, and maybe your mind is like, boom. That the disciples that were hearing this, those Jewish people on the side of that mountain that day, were also blown away by the higher standard and the degree of difficulty and radical ideas that Jesus is presenting here. In Matthew chapter 19, verse 10, look how the, the disciples respond to Jesus. The disciple said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. The disciples even, they say, man, if, if this is true, if I can't divorce this woman, but only if she engages in sexual immorality, habitual sexual immorality, then it's just better for none of us to get married. Why? Because again, what's the culture? They can get divorced for anything. The disciples' response to the importance of the saying of, of, of staying in marriage was for them to stay is better for a man not to marry. They thought it was crazy that Jesus was saying that the only reason why a man could divorce his wife was for continuing to walk in sexual sin. Now later on, the Apostle Paul, go ahead and turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Later on, the Apostle Paul is going to be forced to deal with a question about divorce.
that Jesus, that we know of, Jesus was not asked. In 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 8-16, through 16, common questions, once again, are surrounding this idea and radical teaching, this new teaching of Jesus. The Apostle Paul says this in verse 8, To the unmarried and the widows, I say that it is good for them to remain single as I am. Sounds like a good single man. But if they cannot exercise self-control, they should marry, for it is better to marry than to burn with passion. To the married, I give this charge, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. To the rest, I say, I, not the Lord. And the reason why Paul puts that discrepancy there, he's not saying it's not Scripture or that it's not anointed. But what he repeated earlier, we know that Jesus said those similar statements. Paul, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, I would believe, is, is continuing this. It is inspired, even what Paul is going to say here. To the rest, I'd say, I, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever, key phrase there, who is an unbeliever, and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. For the unbelieving husband is made holy because of his wife, and the unbelieving wife is made holy because of her husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but as it is, they are holy. But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved, or that means to be bound in that marriage. God has called you to peace. For how do you know, wife, whether you will save your husband, or how do you know, husband, whether you will save your wife? So what we have here is two non-believers. One of them becomes a believer, a follower of Jesus. And the boundary that we see placed here is, is if that unbelieving husband deserts that believing wife, then she is free or he is free. But this is only in the case of a believer and a non-believer. If he's not a follower of Jesus, but you find yourself married, and one of you is a believer, and one of you is not, but he's a faithful husband, he wants to remain in that marriage, the Bible clearly teaches here, they're to stay married. Corinth was a, a, a very sexually confused culture and church. Paul, being single, sees the benefits of being single for ministry purposes. However, Paul realized that, I, and I would suggest, that God intends for most people to be married. Marriage is important to God is the greatest teacher for all of us this side of eternity. It appears that Paul was, was asked the question of a person, should, uh, what a person should do if they find themselves married to an unbeliever. If the unbeliever is still living with them, and for all other purposes remains in the marriage, then Paul tells them they should remain in the marriage as well. Peter would also later write, a, or write about this in his letters as well. However, if the believer finds himself deserted by a non-believer, meaning the non-believer is refusing to come back to the marriage, like they just abandon the family, then they are allowed to divorce the non-believer and are allowed to marry again. 
brothers and sisters, I am a byproduct of this type of situation. My last name originally was not Baker. My great-grandfather deserted my great-grandmother and her son, who is my grandfather. So my biological great-grandfather left his, my great-grandmother and their son when they were very little, when my grandfather was very little. He just up, from what I know and what I've been told, just up and disappeared. He abandoned them. Years later, a man named John Baker, my pepaw, as I called him, married my great-grandmother and adopted her, excuse me, adopted her son, Delmer Baker, that's a name you don't hear very often, as his own, and changing our history forever. We are now called Bakers. So from the biblical perspective, you need to get this this morning, from the biblical perspective, people are allowed in extreme cases to divorce for only two reasons. One, habitual sexual sin. Key thing is, it's habitual. Two, a believer who is deserted by a non-believing spouse. A believer who is deserted by a non-believing spouse. In all other cases, we should remain married. Now let me say this. If you find yourself and you wake up and you're married to Walter White, that's a drug dealer. Okay? If you wake up one day and your spouse, male or female, is beating you to death and your children, you should separate yourself immediately from them. If they are a believer, they will seek counsel, they will seek reconciliation, they will seek repentance. The hope should be in that family that one day through counseling, through Jesus, through God's grace, through God's mercy, eventually that marriage, and it may last for years, that separation would eventually come back together. In that separation, it may reveal that that man, that woman who is beating the spouse or the children was ultimately an unbeliever. Thus, freeing the spouse who has been beat. Do not hear me this morning. Ladies, if you are being beat by your husband, get out of that house. You call the police, you call your daddy, and then you call your pastors. That's the order. And we collectively will deal with your husband. Ladies, if you are beating the heck, and I know it sounds funny, but it happens. Ladies, if you are beating your husbands, husbands, leave that house immediately. Call the cops. You probably don't want to call your daddy. But then call your pastors. Okay? It's hard to explain to your dad. My wife's beating the heck out of me. <laughs> All right? What do you mean, son? Okay? Be careful. Do not get in some sort of idea that the Scripture is preaching that you need to stay in an abusive situation. A separation, a legal separation, could be very helpful. Whatever you're going through, one of the first steps should be to seek the counsel of the elders in your church before making those decisions. 
I want to say something here. Once again, we see the importance of covenant church membership. Ladies and gentlemen, it's in the Bible. It's there once again. One of the reasons that God calls out of membership elders is to protect you, to guard you, and guide you in these conversations. There's a difference between attending a church and belonging to one. We see that in this covenant. That's why it should also be very difficult, as it is in marriage, to break a church covenant. Those are extreme cases. Let me break this down for you. A believer and a non-believer... We'll try to get real practical here. A believer and a non-believer should never marry. Ladies, single dudes. A believer and a non-believer should never marry. But if they do, stay married. Two non-believers can get married. But if they do, they should never divorce, but are allowed to in the case of habitual sexual sin. Two non-believers can get married. One becomes a believer. They should stay married to the non-believer. But they are allowed to get a divorce if there is habitual sexual sin or if they are abandoned by the non-believing spouse. Two believers get married. They should stay married. But, in extreme cases, they are allowed in a divorce if there is habitual sexual sin. Let me say a word about remarriage. This is the question a lot of people ask. Can I get remarried? I would argue that instances involving one who was divorced on the grounds of sexual immorality or desertion by an unbeliever, remarriage should be acceptable. This is after a season of, of seeking reconciliation with that person. But if the adulterous spouse or unbelieving spouse will not reconcile, they are free to marry. For all divorces which have occurred for reasons other than sexual immorality or de being deserted by an unbeliever, the expectation for both parties is to pursue reconciliation with the former spouse. Until this reconciliation takes place, both spouses are to remain unmarried, as indicated in 1 Corinthians chapter 7 and 11. Ladies and gentlemen, there are lots of people who have gotten divorced over unbiblical reasons and then have gotten remarried. The Gospel, the Word of God, says that that remarriage as well is wrong. That it is sin. That it goes against God's plan. And that if that's the case, those people should remain single unless it's the reason that we have talked about earlier. Remember, allowance does not mean that you should. Divorce should be very, 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 very last thing on a believer's mind, no matter what their spouse is doing. Like I mentioned a few weeks ago, we are not each other's standards of righteousness. Husbands, right now, look at your wife. 
She is not your standard of righteousness. Wives, look at your husbands. He is not your standard of righteousness. Jesus is. Ultimately, the marriage covenant is between you and God. See, many people, when they say their vows, they're making conditional vows or contractual agreement. And that is not the way the Bible talks about marriage. It is never meant to be a contract or conditional vows. See, a lot of people are standing up there and they're saying this, um, I will love you forever. I will be committed to you in sickness unless you become paralyzed or have dementia. I, I, I will stay with you forever and, unless, unless you become an addict. I, I will stay with you forever unless you don't provide enough money, then I'm gone. I, I, I will stay with you forever unless you commit adultery. The reality is, ladies and gentlemen, brothers and sisters, is that we have all been unfaithful in our vows. Get this. The power in the marriage covenant, the sanctifying work of the marriage covenant is two sinners saying, I do. You remember those days? Let's all get reminiscent for a moment, those of us that are married. If I delivered your, if I preached at your wedding, we're all three crying right now. And it's really embarrassing for me. But we have this really sweet moment, and we're promising, and, and the marriages, the performances, that, or the, the preaching that I do is one of the requirements. I do not marry people unless they will look at each other in the eye and say these words, I will not divorce you. Extra syllables, because we're from the South. I make them say it. I tell them the very first meeting, if you can't say this, I can't marry you. Because I want them to hear it from each other. I want that crowd to hear it. And I want God to hear it. Listen to this. The power of the marriage covenant, the sanctifying work of the marriage covenant, is two sinners saying, I do. And then spending the rest of their lives forgiving each other when they don't. That's marriage. Two people standing up and lying to each other. That's called a marriage ceremony. Two liars on a stage amongst these witnesses and our God in heaven lying through their teeth with tears running through their eyes. Can't wait to get to the honeymoon. Lies. And yet, we spend the rest of our marriage, the rest of our lives, forgiving each other when we break those vows. When you made that covenant, it was not something that God took lightly, even if you did. As followers of Jesus, it should be our desire to fight for our marriages, to realize there is something greater that Jesus is teaching us, even in these difficult seasons of our lives. Our, parent, our, our husbands, our wives are not our standard of righteousness. Jesus is, and so I must look past the inconsistencies. I must look past the pain, the agony, the sin that has been caused to me through my wife, and her um, must do that as well for me to see something greater that Jesus is trying to do. So the question is, is marriage a gospel issue, as I've talked about, like abortion, racism, etc.? Yes. John Piper says this, God's design for marriage in the Bible 
pictures the husband loving his wife the way Christ loves his people and the wife responding to her husband the way that Christ's people should respond to him. I would argue the marriage covenant is the primary illustration this side of heaven of the gospel. God has a special purpose for marriage. As Ephesians tells us that man in marriage is to lay down his life for his bride as Christ did the church. The wife, as she witnesses this sacrificial service, submits and respects her husband. This reflects the love Jesus has for his bride. And the correct response of the church should be to have for her groom. Our Christ-centered marriages are one of the greatest witnessing tools that we have. And when we have terrible marriages or get divorced, that preaches a false gospel to the world. It illustrates that Jesus will leave and forsake us. God is about relationships. Relationships have meaning. They have value. As we have seen, God does not want our relationships to be severed with others due to anger. That's what he's been talking about the last three weeks. He don't want them to be severed through lust, and he does not want them to be severed through divorce. He wants us to be a people in community. A few sermons ago, we looked at anger and saw that there's such a, a feeling of righteous anger. We saw that righteous anger is getting angry at issues that make God angry. We see over and over and over God, Jesus, getting angry over gospel issues. Brothers and sisters, we should be angry over divorce. We should grieve it, not in a way that shuns those who have divorced, but we must respond in two primary ways. One, we must, simply accept, we must not simply accept the cultural norm and ease of divorce. Our righteous anger does not lead us to place the scarlet D upon another person's chest, yet we should be not so quickly and easily attempted or, or tempted to get a divorce ourselves. Two, we fight for our own marriage at all cost, and we help others fight as well. As you guys know, I love Rocky, and I've seen them all. I don't know how many times I love those movies. I still get teary-eyed. Every time he looks out in the crowd and says, you idiot, we did it. All right, I love that. A lot of times in marriage counseling, when I'm helping somebody, trying to shepherd someone through a difficult season in their marriage, I will look at them in the eyes and I will say this, I want you to know only you can fight for your marriage. But I am more than happy to be Mick in your corner. To let you know that you are not doing this alone. That someone is there. The ebbs and flows in marriage are many. It's a daily working of the Holy Spirit in our lives to deny ourselves for the sake of our spouse. Amen? God uses marriage to reveal our selfishness, pride, desire to be God, but also it is a gift, specifically the gift of friendship. Husbands and wives who are married and aren't friends, that is the strangest thing to me. It gives us a gift, the gift of friendship, sexual intimacy, children, and ultimately sanctification. There is no doubt I am married to my best friend. Her name is Laura Baker. It has is, is not always been easy for us. But I'm a better man because of my relationship with my wife, Laura. It takes work. It takes sacrifice. Guys, it, it takes me looking her in the eyes and telling her how I feel. It takes me giving up a lot of closet space. And yet, I want you to know that it is worth it. This summer, for us, it's 15 years. 
I'm excited. Thank you. We made it. How should we respond to this teaching? Singles, you've ignored probably everything I've said up until this point. And if so, you're greatly mistaken. You do not learn how to be married after you're married. You should learn how to be married before you get married. That's why we have community groups that have single people, and we encourage you to be a part of them so that you can witness marriages and disciplining kids. So singles, listen to me. How should you respond to this teaching? Get me. Study marriages from healthy marriages. Be patient in your courting. Get this. If he or she is not personally and passionately seeking Jesus and a covenant member of a local church as an individual, then proceed with caution. That was so good, I'm going to say it again. Study marriage from a healthy marriages. Okay, Your friends, single, should not be getting you advice on marriage. They're terrible at it. They've never been it. You should learn from healthy marriages. Every single person or engaged person, you know, you should be having conversations. You should be having conversations with people like Mike and Cynthia Llewellyn. You should be having dinner with them, single or engaged. You you should be sitting down with them. And let me tell you, Cynthia can make a mean salad. I don't care what Mike says, all right? I like romaine lettuce. He's he's an iceberg guy. See, if you're in community group, you learn about each other. He likes iceberg. I like romaine. Cynthia at community group, she makes the bag up for both of us, but primarily romaine. You should be sitting down with people like that. You know what? You should be sitting down. Our first wedding ceremony that we had here at Mission Church, never know, you may just found that special someone here at Mission. Is Megan York and Adam York. Did not know each other, met at Mission, got married. They are what, two years in? Almost two years this summer. You know what? You should talk to them. Because I guarantee you it hasn't gone as easy as they thought it was going to. So you should be talking to the extremes. People who have been faithful in their marriage. Whenever I hear somebody say we've been married this long, I always say thank you. You proved to me that it can happen. Thank you for illustrating that. Thank you for your stick to ness Thank you. Also, you should talk to young married couples. Because there are going to be issues that are going to come your way that you are not prepared for on the day of your honeymoon. If that person is not following Jesus as an individual, meaning they're being discipled, they're they're reading the Word, they're in prayer, they're being mentored, and a member of a local church on their own, proceed with caution. Did y'all write that down? Taking a quiz afterward. Mr. Hammonds? All right, let me, let me say this too. Because we have college students here and things. Hey, your daddy isn't here, but your big brothers are. If you're in Mission Church and you're dating somebody and we don't know about it, that is a major red flag. Because we're here. Siri's talking to me. 
it, it's a major red flag. Okay? Because we, according to Hebrews, are the ones that are supposed to be keeping watch over your soul. We're held accountable for that. And I know some of your daddies. I'll call him. All right? Also, if you're, having, if you're married and you're having issues and you have not talked to your elders about that, man, that's a red flag. Okay? It always amazes me that you think that these marriages are perfect, even in, in community, even in church, and then they get a divorce and nobody knew or saw it coming. That is so unhealthy. If you're married and you're in the room, fight to have the best marriage possible. Covenant to each other and to God that divorce is never an option. Even in the midst of argument, brothers and sisters, we should never use the term divorce. If you do this, I am going to divorce you. Divorce should be a cuss word. It is like the word Voldemort. You should never say it. All right, for all you nerds in the room, you know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't, Google Voldemort after I'm done. If you're in the room and you're divorced, but you're single, remain single unless it was one of the reasons given in Scripture. Then you are free to remarry. Seek forgiveness and repentance in areas where you may also have been in the wrong. See, some of us probably struggle with forgiveness if, if you've experienced divorce with the person that you used to be married to. You should also seek forgiveness as well. Let's say that you're divorced and remarried. If you're divorced and it was for biblical reasons, and you are remarried, then fight for the marriage you are currently in. If you are divorced and remarried, and it was not for one of the biblical reasons given today, then you should repent, even seek forgiveness from the former spouse of any sin that you have committed, and fight for the new marriage and the current marriage that you are in. And no way am I saying today that if you are divorced and remarried, that, that you should divorce your now spouse to try to fix the old one. Two divorces don't make, a second divorce doesn't make the first one right. However, there, there should be a desire within you to forgive them, to even seek reconciliation with the person that you were formerly married with. I'm not talking about reconciliation back to marriage. Though in some cases that, that happens as long as you're not married again. And we pray that it does. Everyone, in closing, come to Jesus. Brothers and sisters, divorce is not the unforgivable sin. Over and over again, the Israelites and us as well, the church, God's people, have divorced themselves from God. We have, 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 have sought the arms of another. We have abandoned God. 
Yet God is faithful to His people. We cannot judge those whom have divorced into internal damnation because through the lens of the gospel, brothers and sisters, each one of us have prostituted ourselves out to other gods. The cross and the resurrection heal the sins that we have committed and heals the sins that have been committed to us. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones says this, but on the basis of the gospel and in the the interest of truth, I am compelled to say this, even adultery is not the unforgivable sins. It is a terrible sin, but God forbid that there is and should be anyone who feels that he or she has sinned himself or herself outside of the love of God or outside of his kingdom because of adultery. No. If you truly repent and realize the the enormity of your sin and cast yourself upon the boundless love and mercy of God's grace, you can be forgiven, and I assure you, a pardon. But hear the words of the blessed Lord. Go and sin no more. God can take what is evil, what is terrible, a horrific event, and suffering, and turn it to His glory and our good. Romans 8 tells us, one of my favorite passages in all of Scripture, all things work for the good of those who are called according to His purposes, right? Now, Paul isn't saying there that all of those events are good. He said, he's not saying I make the event good. It can be a horrific event. They can be hellish things, and yet God is saying He is taking those hellish things, He's taking the plan of sin, Satan, and death, and He's going to twist them, turn them, mold them, and and go away from their original and purpose by sin, Satan, and death, and He is going to make them for God's glory and for our good. Is this not the story of David once again? David is on his palace. Again, I told you last week, he is looking out. There is a beautiful woman named Sheba. She is taking a bath in the, in the afternoon, it appears, and she is naked. And she must have been very appealing to the eye. David sins. I mean, he's essentially looking at Palestinian porn. And David sees this woman. He tells his people to go get that woman, bring her to, the, uh, to his palace, to his bedroom. He lays with her. She becomes pregnant. To cover it over, David kills her husband, who is probably one of David's best friends. The man is killed in battle, essentially at David's hand. The baby dies. But later, Bathsheba and David have another son. His name is Solomon. And guess what? Solomon has a son. And that son 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 has a son. And his name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. So God took something that was evil. It was horrific. It was divorce. It was pornonia. It was murder. It was anger. It was all of these things. And eventually in God's sovereign plan, in his sovereign grace, laid it out that from that very family tree, one would be named. His name is Jesus. So those who have been divorced come to Jesus. 
those through the lens of the gospel who have tried to divorce yourself from God, I want you to realize this. God has never left his position. He has never left his covenant. And he calls you back to himself, no matter how wayward you may be going, wherever you are in your relationship with Jesus, whether you've tried to abandon him, whether you do not have a relationship with him at all, Jesus is saying, come, come, come to the cross, come to the resurrection. The pain of divorce on this earth is great, but may we know that God's grace is greater still. Come to Jesus. Let's pray.